0: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
0: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. Grew up in London and attended Oxford University and UEA. Her first novel, Disobedience, was published in ten languages, and like her second novel, The Lessons, it was read on BBC Radio's Book at Bedtime. In 2006, she won the Orange Award for New Writers, and in 2007, she was named Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year and one of Waterstone's 25 Writers for the Future. Her prize-winning short fiction has appeared in Prospect, on BBC Radio 4, and in a number of anthologies. In 2009, she was shortlisted for the BBC National Short Story Award. Naomi broadcasts regularly, has guest presented Front Row on BBC Radio 4, and writes regularly for Prospect and The Guardian. Her third novel, The Liar's Gospel, was published by Penguin in August 2012, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, Naomi, welcome to Little Atoms.
2: Hello, it's lovely to be here. Or rather, it's lovely to have you here in, my, in my
0: actual house. Indeed, we're in lovely Hendon in the leafy <laughs> North London. So, I've seen this book described in numerous ways. I want to ask you how you would describe it.
2: It's an interesting question. When I, before I, w- I wrote it or when I was writing it and people said to me, what are you writing about? I said it's a book about Jesus. It's told in the form of four alternate gospels of characters who don't get a gospel in the original, mm-hmm. who are Mary, the mother of Jesus, Judas, the betrayer, Caiaphas, who was the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem at the time, and Barabbas, who is the thief and murderer who's released when Jesus is crucified. So the crowd going, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. In the book, they don't have those names. Mm-hmm. I have reinstated their original Hebrew or Aramaic names. And I suppose what I also say about it is, let's say it's Jesus from the Jewish perspective, mm-hmm. which is to say, I first came to the idea of the book when I was doing my A-levels, actually. So I've had a good long time to think about it. And I discovered that there were some slight faint mentions of Jesus in some of the Jewish texts of the period. He's not very much mentioned either in the Jewish or in the Roman text because during his lifetime he wasn't that important. Which is in itself, I realise, quite a controversial thing to say, but mm-hmm. you know, the truth. So we might as well talk about the truth. And having heard about this, I, I remember I said to my Hebrew teacher because I, I was doing Hebrew A level and Latin A level at the same time, and, and I remember saying to my Oh, somebody should write a novel about like the Jewish what Jesus is according to the Jews. Mm-hmm. And my Hebrew teacher said to me, Oh no, nobody should write that book. That would be terrible for the Jews. They would all hate us for writing it. And the things that you're told you mustn't do are the things that really stay with you. Sure. And I really felt like the more I thought about it, it was an idea for the 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 idea for the book came back to me every Easter when you would have on Radio Four you have the same kind of you know here is the Easter story and here are the Easter programmes and oh it just I remember it really used to piss me off. But there was this incredible focus on this single figure of this one crucified man. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to pull the camera right back and go, look, there's a forest of crosses around him. Josephus, who's a historian of Mm -hmm. of the period, tells us that the Romans crucified something like 10,000 people on a single day and lined the streets to Jerusalem with them as a warning and in fact I put that into the book and so there was something that seemed to me kind of grotesque to have this continuing focus on this one chap when actually the story is so much bigger I should tell you I think I have another two books in this because there's this book which is about Jesus and about I mean I don't think I'm offensive about Jesus in the book it's about what I think happened mm-hmm. the intention my intention was to think it through quite carefully and go okay so how could this have happened mm-hmm. if what we read and in the new testament is what people believed at the time what can we as modern rational thinking people imagine actually happened and to to leave a space for you know people who want to believe that sort of miraculous things happened fair enough but uh, many of us don't believe that miraculous things happened and therefore it needs accounting for and it needs talking about so that's what this book is and then i think i have a book that i want to write about paul who's really the guy who takes this little cult and says, oh, maybe we could... It's a Jewish cult. And at, mm-hmm. and at some point he says, well, maybe we could try and, like, shop this to the Mm non-Jews. And then it becomes, you know, a much bigger deal. And then I think I have a book about Constantine, which Mm -hmm. is where Christianity really hits the big time. And then it becomes a state religion of Rome. And my God, so much of what you see in modern Christianity is so Roman. I was just reading yesterday about Roman gods and goddesses, all of whom have their particular animals, animals Mm -hmm. that are particularly identified with them. This is not a Jewish thing, There's none of that in the Torah or in the New Testament. There's no, you know, Mark always has an ox or whatever it is. Somebody's going to write to me and say, Mark doesn't have an ox, it's a sheep or something. But anyway, there's various saints have their mm. various animals. This comes straight from Rome. Mm-hmm. This is straight from how Romans talked about their gods and... The idea of being a man who is also a god is very Roman. The idea of apotheosis on death is very Roman. None of these ideas are Jewish ideas. You don't find any of this stuff prefigured in the Old Testament if that's what you're looking for. He's a Roman god. He's a very efficiently portrayed very useful Roman god. He's somebody that you can franchise out across the empire. In the same way that really I mean there's a reason that the Roman Catholic Church is still based in Rome. Mm-hmm. You know, those historical patterns, this is what happened. It's you know. So it's interesting to me to have a look at that and to, and to trace that whole that whole line. That's not why I'm doing this book. This book is just about let's say the lifetime of Jesus, not mm-hmm. only about the life of Jesus, but also I became very fascinated by what was really going on in the history at the time.
0: You said times that it's a book about jesus jesus is quite a ephemeral presence in it he <laughs> sort of flits around and he passes through it and you've also mentioned that it's well the, the bible the new testament the story of jesus in the bible is is told through four stories Mm. four gospels they sort of overlap each other and and frankly they contradict each other yes they do if you you read the things all in in one go
2: you'd think that christians would want to talk about that more actually Mm -hmm. because it's really kind of beautiful that the people who compiled the new testament didn't just pick one version and say this is the only version all other versions are heretical Mm -hmm. you know what what they did was to say here are four different stories about this guy and actually you see a very different jesus in the gospel of matthew in the gospel of mark you know in and at some points, he seems to be, he's a Jesus who's advocating violence. At some mm-hmm. points, you know, he says, I come not to bring peace but the sword. And at other times, he seems to be very much engaged in theological debates. And actually, that's something that Christianity could really be proud of is to say, well, you know, each of us comes to our own Jesus. There's not one monolithic mm-hmm. Jesus. And yet, actually, that's the origins of Christianity. But Rome needs something different. And this is, it's terribly interesting to me, really, that in a way we still live under the Empire of Rome because Christianity is still the dominant world theology mm-hmm. and and in a way that you know that's the last remnant of the roman empire and, mm-hmm. we, and we all live with it all the time so yes so so for rome it wouldn't have been okay to say well you know maybe he's peaceful but maybe he's warlike romans wanted to know
0: what i was going to go on to was mm-hmm. that that's then what you've done is you've written these four separate stories about the four characters and you've already mentioned who they were so i guess what we should do is we'll work through those four mm-hmm. characters and we'll talk about why that particular character and there's also a slightly different I guess a slightly different style in each of the four chapters that they have a different emotional connection Mm. to the to the figure of Jesus so um well the first one is Miriam who's his who's his mother Mary yes why Mary? I guess first of all. I mean, she's. Oh, I guess she's an obvious one to go for. But
2: <laughs> yeah, she is a bit obvious. I kind but you of...
0: do something different with her, I think, which is the
2: yeah a good thing to say. I mean, it's interesting for me. What I was going to say about the figure of Jesus flitting through the text, mm-hmm. which is, I don't really have any particular beef with Jesus or any particular like affiliation to him. I never really thought about him when I was a child. I. Have, was never encouraged to try and develop a relationship with him. And so from that point of view, I think maybe I'm able to approach him in a quite a clear-eyed way. And just he's a very strange character mm-hmm. in the New Testament. He's at times he really genuinely seems quite disturbed. One of the parts of, of, of the New Testament that really surprised me when I first read it through when I was a teenager was this part where it says he was preaching and his mother and his brothers come to see him preach and afterwards they go the mother his mother and his brothers go and try and speak to him jesus says who is my mother and who are my brothers these the people who are with me in the lord are my mother and my brothers and as somebody who hadn't been particularly taught to regard this as holy or as something wonderful i just read it and went jesus this is no way to talk to your mother this this, this is terrible how would that if your son talked to you in that way. So I suppose that's where my thinking about Mary started mm-hmm. is in this thought that he was really mean to her. I don't really take the Gospel of John as one of my main sources because it's a much later gospel. Mm-hmm. I rely much more on Mark, which is, which is the earliest gospel. But in John, there she is. She says she asked him if he'll, if he'll do something to help the guests at the wedding at Cana. And he goes, what has this to do with me, woman? And you just go, this was a terrible relationship you know and you see a sort of mary portrayed who is i don't know meek and loving and just crying all the time because her son's died and or you know she's sort of our lady of perpetual sorrows and and some kind of i suppose an image of serenity i don't really know how people regard the virgin mary but that's what it looks like <laughs> and it seemed to me that well i can tell you the truth about this my Grandmother lost one of her sons. Mm-hmm. My father's brother committed suicide when I was a teenager. In fact, roughly the same time that I was reading the New Testament, as it happens. And I thought about this a lot when I was thinking about what it would be like to have had a son who really was so cavalier with his own life. I mean, Mm -hmm. this I think we can get from the New Testament. If there really was a Jesus, which there's no particular evidence there really was. But if there was, or there could have been more than one and the sayings are united under one name. But if there was, I think it must surely be that sort of feeling. He really committed suicide by Roman soldier, you Mm -hmm. know, in that suicide by cop way. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed to me that you would end up feeling both both grieving and very angry. Mm -hmm. This was what happened to my grandmother, that anger never left her, this feeling of, why would he have done this to us? And yeah, he seemed like an odd person. And I thought, well, you know, any sort of normal mother, and and because the New Testament says, that I mean, names several brothers. This is a woman who's had many children, actually. And not this kind of pristine person who only has the one son who turns out to be the son of God, but just an ordinary woman who'd had a bunch of children and the first one turned out to be mental. And this would be quite difficult to deal with.
0: And she takes on another character, somebody who's been one of, or we presume Mm. has been one of Jesus's followers. Mm.
2: Yes, so this boy, Gidon, turns up and... At first, she tries to send him away. He's come to her looking for stories. And this is another theme of the book. I mean, the book is called The Liar's Gospel, and and people sometimes seem to feel that I'm saying that the gospel is a lie, which is, it's not a non-fiction book, and that's just a title of a novel. But part of the thought of the novel is about how stories come to be told Mm -hmm. and how they come to be retold. And I have heard saying a sentence at some point in the book where she thinks about all the stories that she's ever heard and how they came to be. And she says, either they were true or someone made a mistake, or someone lied. Only these three things. Mm-hmm. Every story you've ever heard, only those three things. So if we do not believe that a man rose again from the dead, which I don't, then we're left with either it was a mistake or somebody lied. It's a hard thing to make a mistake about. <laughs> Although, having said that, the Gospel of Mark, the oldest Gospel, in the oldest versions that we have, does not end with the resurrection. The Gospel of Mark in the oldest versions ends with the women go to the tomb the tomb is empty, there's a man in the garden who says to them, he's gone. And when I read this, when I read that this was the oldest thing, I thought, oh, okay, well, I can work with that. That's fine. If that's what happened, absolutely fine. Mm. You know, I can I can work with that in a million different ways. Then all of these stories that accrete around Jesus, where do they come from? So this boy, Gidon wants some stories from her, and she's not necessarily willing to give them. And it could be that he is also bringing danger to them so this village because they're a village under occupation i suppose that's another theme of the novel that we've sort of touched on but haven't really talked about is what it is to live under occupation their lives are not their own their land is not their own they are living under the constant threat that the army will just come and destroy everything that they've created there so it's dangerous it's dangerous to harbor Gidon.
0: The second character that you look at that again is someone that everybody is familiar with this story will be familiar with, is Judas, mm. who everybody knows has become sort of synonymous with <laughs> betrayal. Yeah. So you give a although that is what happens, you obviously give a much more sympathetic mm. hearing to him.
2: So again, I mean each one of these is interesting, starts with something in the text.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So when I I thought I wanted to write about Judas. I thought Judas was an interesting character. I thought that i could understand why somebody would end up betraying their friend because i don't believe that jesus was the son of god i don't think it was necessarily the wrong thing to do so reading the new testament Two stories are juxtaposed. You know, reading it as a novelist, as as a writer of fiction. First of all, there's a story where all the disciples are in uh, this place Bethany or Beitany, you would say mm-hmm. in Hebrew, and a woman comes and pours perfume on Jesus' head—a very, very expensive perfume that could have been that, that was worth a lot of money. And it says in, in the New Testament, one of the disciples says, "Jesus, why did you let her do that? This perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor." And Jesus says. The poor will always be with you, but I won't be with you for much longer. That's a terrible answer. That's an awful answer. It's a self aggrandizing appalling answer. Anyway, and then the very next thing in the New Testament, like the next line is, and then it came to pass that Judas went to, to, the, mm-hmm. to the... And I thought, oh, well, clearly Judas is this disciple who's saying the money could have been... The pope could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And in fact, by the time you get to John... John has decided that that's what happened as well. Mm -hmm. Me and John both looked at this and were like, oh, yeah, that's what that story is. But then John goes, Judas asked this question only because he wanted to take the money and steal it. You're like, John, you're protesting too much. We all know this is what's going on here. And so so it's a literary intuition, let's Mm -hmm. say. I looked at Judas and I thought, well, that's a very good reason, actually. Mm -hmm. If he's a chap who's, you know, he's followed somebody who he thought had good answers, but who has turned out to start believing his own... Marketing. He mm-hmm. started to believe his own spin doctors or believe his own myth, and he started to think maybe he really is the messiah. And things like people wasting huge amounts of money on him is perfectly reasonable. Mm-hmm. Then at that point you would go, well this has to be over." You know, it's it's we're no longer doing good anymore. At which point, give him to the Romans. Who cares? I can really, I can really feel it actually, because you know, once you start to look at their story in that way, then you go, "Oh, it's like any other cult leader." that's how that works they mm-hmm. start off persuading people and maybe they themselves really believe that they're doing good things and then they end up you know like Elron hubbard or whatever just fleecing people for a lot of money and coming up with clever little lines when people say but why are you taking the money i thought we were supposed to be helping the poor and i realize that for many people that would be very shocking to hear that about jesus but if you don't believe in him, then it's not shocking at all. That's just how cults work. People do get swept up by their own mythology.
0: But that's one of the. It's only one of the options that you explore. And I mentioned earlier about this. I think that the book is not about Jesus. Jesus mm. flits through it, comes in and out. And one of the one of the sort of aspects of that that I that I really love was that does leave it open for whatever interpretation you want to put on Jesus' yeah. behavior and his skills you don't firmly say he's a con man or he can perform miracles mm. you sort of leave that up to people's own interpretation and the classic example of that obviously you've mentioned it already is the bodyguard missing from the tomb which mm. becomes a running joke almost through the book In that everybody thinks somebody else has taken it yes but also you don't explicitly say there's no way he, yeah, he rose no. from the dead you, you leave that mystery open
2: yeah and i'm not- interested in i'm not interested in having arguments with people's religion you know my feeling is you believe what you want to believe what i wanted to do was point out some alternative interpretations and you're right so there's the big deal actually of jesus's ministry was the healing Mm -hmm. and and it's funny people people don't necessarily put emphasis on that anymore but that was really what he did he traveled from town to town healing people so what's going on there so i try to explore a few different things that could have been going on there one thing and this and this comes out a lot in in Judas's section is a lot of the people that he heals are possessed by demons. Mm-hmm. So what would we say now about somebody who says that there are demons talking to them and telling them to do horrible things? We would say, "Oh, schizophrenia." Oh, paranoid schizophrenia, you know, psychotic. And doing a bit of research in, into that, I discovered that it's quite common now, not necessarily to say to people ignore the voices but say somehow to interact with the voices the voices are really just a kind of turning up the volume of voices that we all have in our heads you know we all have I don't know you lick the butter knife and you have your mum's voice in your head saying don't be disgusting or whatever it might be and that it's possible to interact with those voices and so I thought well maybe this is what Jesus was doing you know he's a charismatic powerful speaker somebody who speaks to these people and is able to convince them that their voices are no longer going to torment them and that this would help, actually, somebody doing that in that very in that very convincing way. So that's I put that as a suggestion and I have one of the other characters saying, oh, well, you know, a lot of these tricks can be done with just a, a, a sheepskin bag full of blood up your arm can make it seem that you've done that. And I, I don't need to say this is definitely what happened. I don't know what really happened, but I can point out that there are a variety of different ways of looking at it.
0: Yeah, okay, just to finish this section off, then you already raised the point that people have, have commented on the title of the book. It's a book that's four overlapping stories in the main, but there's also there is also a at the end of the book, particularly a, a, a sort of like omniscient narrator who basically says, "and this is what happened. This yeah. is sort of the history. You can interpret that how you like." And it is called the liar's gospel, right? Yeah. So this so the book is in some way about truth and about the you know about the flimsy nature of truth. So. Well, who is the liar?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Look, the apostrophe is after the S. There's yes. more than one liar. There's more than one liar. I think at a certain point in each of these stories, they all lie. Mm-hmm. So Miriam tells at least one lie to Giddon, and she knows it's a liar when she does it. Judas is... By the point that the story takes place, he's living with uh, a wealthy Greek merchant and telling a sort of comedy version of his story for this for this wealthy merchant's guests and uh, to sort of earn his keep there, which he knows to be a lie. He knows that telling it as if all that happened was that he sort of just betrayed somebody for the sake of it is a lie. Caiaphas is constantly lying. He's the high priest of the temple and his whole job is to tell a series of shaded truths to the people and to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate in order to try and keep the peace and well Barabbas, Baravo who's the the, he's the murderer but I decided to make him a sort of freedom fighter or a terrorist one of the two who were fighting against Romans at that time well he ends up doing really the worst kind of lying which is um a kind of terrorism that really took place at the time which was that these people the zealots uh the sicarii would go through the marketplace and crowded at a crowded moment would randomly stab someone and then blame it on the romans so there's a lot of lying but also i'm lying i mean in the sense that all stories are lies in the sense that i've shaped this because i want to make a particular point about how we could look at all these stories differently Mm -hmm. In exactly that way, I've decided to leave some things out and to shape it in a different way and to put emphasis on a particular place. And I suppose that last couple of pages is really my confession. I almost put the word I in it. I took, put it in and took it out and put it in and took it out. Uh, where I, I, I have a bit where I say all storytellers know that every story is at least partly a lie. And then I almost put in a sentence after that, I suppose this story is no different. Because yeah, that's what I've done. I'm not the title is really me saying, I don't make a claim to objective truth there. None of us can know the objective truth of what happened 2,000 years ago. Here's a way it could have gone, which makes perfect sense of what we read in the New Testament and what we read subsequently, but I'm also lying.
0: The liar has gospel. <laughs> You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Naomi Alderman about her book, The Liar's Gospel. Naomi, what I'd like to explore in this second part of the show is, from the perspective of myself, somebody who knows little about the history of Judaism and about the Roman occupation of Judea and and indeed the Bible, I'm interested in talking about how how you would basically go about researching... A historical text in this way, and there's various aspects of that that we'll go through. But first of all, the place. Although we're talking about possibly, which we'll get onto. Possibly, did they exist? Did they not exist? Historical characters. We certainly know that there is a place called Jerusalem. I've been there. It's there, and <laughs> it is definitely it there. It is yes. definitely there, and there, there were the Romans, and the Romans basically occupied Judea in that period of time. So. Let's first of all talk about how you went about researching the place because you paint an incredibly vivid and visceral description of to be living in that place at that time.
2: So it's interesting I had lived in Israel. In fact, I'd lived in Jerusalem when I was very, very small. My father was on sabbatical there and and we lived there from when I was about four and five years old. So from that point of view, when you live somewhere when you're that young, it really gets all the way inside your Mm -hmm. bones, you know. I thought, oh, shall I go back and research? But actually, I didn't need to go back to see it again. I know what the texture of the soil is i know on that sort of level so that is helpful i grew up an orthodox jew which is tremendously helpful in that i learned my hebrew is pretty good my aramaic is not too bad which is for reading the talmud Mm. um I did Latin A level and thinking about eventually wanting to write this book, I did a couple of courses in Greek with the Open University just to get my Greek up to the stage where I could at least, you know, look at a page of it next to the translation and see what word was with which word. So just to see if there were any variations. So it is true that I've probably been researching this book for about 20 years. Um, So that's the sort of groundwork. Then there is a lot written about this subject. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me that I... Did not know how to tell whether a book I was reading was really great research and sort of very well regarded in the field or whether it was something written by a crackpot. So I asked around and this honestly, if anybody who wants to research anything, the best thing to do is to just keep saying to people, everyone, you know, I'm interested in researching this. Do you happen to know anyone? And in fact, you don't even need to say that. If you, at the moment that you say, we're interested in researching this, if somebody knows someone, they'll go, ooh, yes, you should talk to so and so. People are just incredible. I'm actually researching a book about Uganda now, and I just mentioned this to somebody today who's going to hook me up, hopefully, to go and do a bit of teaching in Uganda for a week or so, which was the best way to get to <laughs> know somewhere. So, mentioning it to everybody as I was, somebody pointed me in the direction of a theology student at Oxford University, Rebecca Tay, who became my research assistant in the early stages and she really pointed me towards you know the beginner's texts. I actually read a lot of her essays about the Gospels which really got me started with that. I also was very lucky I got in touch with a couple of academics who'd written quite serious important books one of whom Martin Goodman, Professor Martin Goodman, wrote a book called Roman Jerusalem which if you're interested in this period it's just a great book Mm -hmm. to read. It's it's non-fiction, it's gripping and, and it really takes you around the history of the period. And the other book by Professor Amy Jill Levine, she's the only jewish professor of new testament studies in america <laughs> and she has written a book which is also i cannot recommend enough called the misunderstood jew it was only when i read this that i realized that i too had imbibed some anti-semitic myths and believed them and only when she pointed out to me that they were anti-semitic myths did i realize it for example we love to say the god of the new testament is loving and the god of the old testament is vengeful this is an anti-semitic way to read the text In fact, there's Jesus saying, I come not to bring peace, but the sword. And there's in the Old Testament, love thy neighbour as thyself, beat your swords into plowshares, so on and so forth. This was an absolute revelation to me. And I was very fortunate that they both agreed to read the novel for me. So I started out with reading lists made for me by my research assistant. After a while, you get a feel for what you're looking for. I primarily went back to the primary sources to the original sources so i read tacitus who's a roman historian of the period and Mm -hmm. in fact i'd read some tacitus already so to get a feeling of what's really going on in rome at that time i had already read quite a quantity of the talmud which is a jewish book it's really a book of law and discussion Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of history in there and i have a couple of good friends who are talmud scholars so that could point me towards good parts of it so i had i mean i'll tell you the kind of thing you get from the talmud there's a section in which the rabbis are talking about whether or not you're allowed to slaughter an animal on the sabbath and the answer is, no, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. And then one of them says, but his son loves to play with a chicken's head. Is he allowed to just pull the chicken's head off because he's giving it to his son for a toy? And they debate this for one the and they decide, no, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath day. That kind of thing really gets you right into what the world was like <laughs> at the time. You know, people are not playing with Nintendo. Little children are playing with chicken's heads. So I suppose both having studied the Talmud and having studied Rome really made that period very very alive for me. And so so I read I read Tacitus, I read Josephus uh who's this he's a he's basically our main source mm-hmm. for the Jewish history of the time. He was a Jewish nobleman really who was with the Jewish rebellion for a long time. He was part of the rebel alliance and a spy. And, and then he uh when it seemed like the jews were definitely going to lose he changed sides and went over to the romans and and helped out the romans so he was indeed a traitor but he he survived to write some books about the time and what's interesting there is whilst you can't necessarily believe him about rome because he obviously wants to make rome look yeah he's going
0: to be him, quite self-serving in yeah that way, isn't
2: he? yeah but you can believe him if he says something good about the jews because his um his motivations are towards making the jews look not so good and the romans look well it's interesting i mean this also this is a fascinating thing to find out about when you start to read the academic work you realize that the and the same is true in science you realize that the sort of the simplified version that we're given where everything seems to be very smooth and understood is completely i mean it's pap you know, it's like every single crenellation, every little crag has been smoothed out. Mm-hmm. We've plastered over it all. But actually, we don't know. We don't, really, we don't really know which gospel was written first. We surmise it from various pieces of textual evidence. And the evidence is quite good, but it's not 100%. And there are there a are few bits in Josephus where he seems to be talking about Jesus. It's a problem. Because that often they're written in language so flowery that we just think, oh, the monks added this when they were copying mm-hmm. it. You know, I mean, that's also a problem. We've, the whole thing's been infected with the past 2,000 years of Christian history. But so you can kind of peel some of that away. So you have to take all of these with a grain of salt. But I thought that would be very good to go back to these primary sources. And really it was looking at that that made me start thinking about Caiaphas and his family.
0: Yeah, I I wanted to come on to him next. You just mentioned the chicken heads. And and I mentioned earlier that you create a really visceral picture of life at that time. And one of the things is how much blood there is. And this is not just the Romans killing Jews in riots. It's the sheer volume of the sacrifice of animals. So the next thing I wanted to say was, okay, let's talk about, you know, you've researched religious ritual mm-hmm. and i guess that brings on we did as i said i wanted to, as we went through the interview bring in the four characters that you talked about so let's talk about caiphus now and how you a researched the rituals but basically this family of high priests
2: so so the rituals come almost exclusively from the Talmud. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good stuff in there about that because there are many people who would like to restore the temple and see the sacrifices brought back. So whilst I do not share that that wish, they're very handy because these fundamentalist maniacs have done a lot of reconstruction of what the services would have been like and how it would have worked and how uh, basically the... Anyone who was from this house of Cohen, which remains a Jewish surname mm-hmm. to this day, was a priest. And all the firstborn children, all firstborn male children, had to go and serve in the temple at a certain point in the year. And so this I really found out, really from reading the work of Fundamentalist Maniacs, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is to find out exactly how this operated and then this was interesting to me and I think when I started out thinking about the book I thought well Caiaphas I'll just make him quite uh vague mm-hmm. I thought not a vague character but I'll make him a person who's who really doesn't know what's going on but then when I started to really read about Josephus reading about how influential the high priests were and at one point he says there's a high priest who's a brother-in-law of Caiaphas who when He is killed by these rebels. At that point, Josephus says, this was the end of any hope for the Jews. After this guy who had some good sense was dead, that's it, it's all over. And so it seemed to me, actually, of course, he couldn't be very aloof from this situation. Mm -hmm. I imagined him as very aloof, but he couldn't be. He's somebody who's regularly meeting with Pontius Pilate, the governor, who, incidentally, Pontius Pilate, we know, was recalled to Rome for brutality. Now to be recalled to Rome for brutality, you had to. It must have, br- have been bad. Yeah, you had to been pretty bloody brutal. You know, they didn't mind if you if he was just executing criminals. This would not have been an issue. But uh, so yeah, so thinking about Caiaphas, I suddenly then it was very interesting to me a that I didn't realise until I started this research that he was part of this real family of high priests. Also that it's all brothers apart from him. He's the brother in law. He's married to the sister. So there's an implied wife there, Mm -hmm. who does not appear in Josephus. Nobody mentions her, nobody says anything about her. But you know, as a woman, (laughs) I sometimes notice when there are implied women, like how you can tell that there's a new planet somewhere because it interferes with the orbit of another planet. Mm -hmm. So exactly that, there's a sort of dark woman there who you can't see. And I thought, well, this is very interesting. She's the daughter of the high priest. She's the sister of four different high priests. She's the wife of a high priest. This seems like she would probably be quite an interesting and formidable woman
1: mm-hmm.
2: and therefore I wanted to get into that story how that works and how, how it works for Caiaphas to be the son-in-law of this extremely powerful man. His father-in-law Annas had been the high priest for the longest period of time and continued to pull the strings right. really. So I became completely fascinated by this family and ended up Yeah, not being able to... I think they pulled me off track and by the time I was writing about Barabbas I was much more interested in the Jewish history of the period than I had I've been intending to come back very closely to Jesus and actually I was like, I'm finished with Jesus now. He's boring compared to all of this fascinating history.
0: So the other aspect of research that I want to look at this is it's a it's a historical book about a historical period. It's a novel, but it tells the story of a historical period. And you've written two other works of literary fiction, but were both contemporary fiction. This is a very different thing. Yes. And ask me what I'm
2: writing next.
0: What are you writing next? I'm writing science fiction. So well, that in itself will be in a, will have to be written in a in a certain style. I guess that's sort of part of the the question I'm I'm going to ask. I want to talk about how you how you go about researching the writing style. And I guess the best way to hear that language would be to get you to read a piece of it. So,
2: OK, so I'll start with a riot. They wait until dark. Through the roasting day, people go about their business with stiff bodies and dark waiting eyes. By the fifth hour of the afternoon, the shops close up their shutters and the mothers bring their children in and somewhere the young men are waiting. But no one can see them, not yet. In the evening, the second daily sacrifice takes place. Every morning and every evening, a new lamb, to remind us that we must die. Caiaphas can see it in the men who come to the offering. One of them mutters as they leave, Stay home tonight, Cohen. The others look and nod to see that he has understood. They wait until dark, and past dark. Into the night they wait, standing on street corners, their cloaks pulled up around their faces. And the soldiers know something is wrong, but the garrison at Jerusalem is small, and they are just standing, and they cannot arrest people for standing. And besides, where would they put so many men? One of them begins to shout. It is the old call. David, he shouts. For David, king of the Jews! They take it up and throw it between them. For David! For David! Like a wolf pack taking up a howl. Their pockets are full of stones. One of them throws a stone at the shield of the small tangle of Roman men standing at the gates of their storehouse. It bounces off the shield with a dull thwack of stone on wood and tumbles clattering to the ground. And then the sky begins to rain stones. The riot goes on through the night. They set the grain store on fire, the one the Romans keep as supplies for their garrison. "'A thousand days' worth of wheat for a hundred men "'burns with the sweet smell of roasting "'and then the black scent of wasted wood "'and the death of summer's past. "'The flames leap to the stable "'and the horses begin to scream in terror, "'kicking at the doors of their stalls, "'but the doors are built to withstand precisely this. "'Someone gets one of the stable doors open "'and the animals stampede through the streets,' rolling their eyes and rearing and foaming, but not all of them are saved, and their screams grow louder, and soon there is the smell of blackened flesh, and death is always the same. Whatever set the events in motion that led to it, death and destruction are always just the same. There is a glory in it for the young men whose blood is up and whose limbs ache for battle and for the sweet exhaustion of the hunt. Most of them are young indeed, 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, and they yearn for a fight. There is a delight in it, because these Romans have taken their land and laid their people low and desecrated their holy places, and it is good to see them suffer. But in the morning the streets are full of broken pots, and the smell of burning in the air, and the market traders are afraid to set up their little stalls, and the people look at each other with downcast eyes, and Caiaphas thinks this. They begin to gather in the afternoon at the prefect's palace. They are spent now, tired now, but there are so many of them and they keep coming. All the people of Jerusalem are here, shouting out that the temple money is holy, that the prefect must not use it for this watercourse, that he must abandon his plans. It's not that they object to having an aqueduct, but this way of trampling down the things that are most sacred to them is abhorrent. He has not tried to understand them. They must make him understand. The crowd grows a little ugly in their chanting and their jeers. Pilot! Your mother was an ass and your father was a donkey! No one wants you in Syria and they hate you back in Rome! Just leave us alone and crawl back home! The crowd is thick, full of men and women who have brought bread and water and intend to spend the day protesting. Men seem to have come from outside the city, for many of those standing quietly in the crowd, faces shaded from the sun by the hoods of their light robes are newcomers. There are no soldiers. A wise man, perhaps, would have let them shout themselves out, encircled them with quiet armed men, and, at dusk, had them escorted from the plaza. But Pilate has too much pride for peace. That is his disaster. He leaves it until the late afternoon to address the crowd, when they are hot and thirsty after many hours at their most irritable He shouts down from the balcony words that are perhaps meant to recall Cicero addressing an angry mob with enough vivid clarity to calm and soothe them. But, of course, Pilate is no Cicero. His words are not those of the great orator, and his delivery is weedy and thin. And the language is a problem. He begins to speak in Greek, and is immediately shouted down. He has Aramaic enough to try it again, but this is perhaps a mistake. People of Jerusalem! he shouts, and his accent is wrong. And he puts the stress on the second syllable, rue, and not at the end where it belongs. I have heard your voices! And this is wrong too. Because it sounds like a mockery of God's words telling the children of Israel and Egypt that he has heard their cries. But nothing that Pilate says in this tongue can work. His accent proves he is not one of them and can never understand. Let me be clear. I seek only... He hesitates, searching for words. To make your lives better! to bring you comfort and relief. Fuck off back home then, shouts one wag in the crowd, and a laugh ripples through the square. Pilate flushes, the pink coursing up his face across his bald skull. His hands grip the marble balustrade in front of him. If the crowd were not buoyed up by their sense of invincible oneness, they would understand that they should be afraid. People of Jerusalem, Rome bears great love for you. "'Shame, cos we fucking hate her!' "'Another ripple of laughter. "'Can any man bear to be laughed at?' "'Pilot's knuckles are white against the marble. "'If it were possible, his fingers would have crushed it to powder. "'It is time for you to disperse! "'Rome simply wants!' "'He coughs as if he is being strangled. "'Rome simply wants to improve the streets of your beautiful city!' "'The streets belong to us!' someone shouts." and the crowd take it up as a chant. The streets belong to us! The streets belong to us! And Pilate's face has gone from red to white, and his nostrils flare, and his eyes widen, and his whole posture stiffens. You are common criminals, he says, though he does not speak loudly enough for his words to reach across the crowd. And you deserve all that is coming to you! If you are old enough to riot, you are old enough to face the consequences! And Pontius Pilate, who has never suffered who has never lived under occupation, who has never been trapped by soldiers or known what it is to see those things in which you believe trampled by an overwhelming force, raises his right arm high and brings it down on the balustrade three times. The signal is understood. All over the square, quiet men mingling with the crowd throw back the hoods of their simple travelling cloaks and uncover their faces and pull out their daggers. The crowd is unarmed. It is angry and it has hurled insults, but it is not violent. They do not even have stones to throw. The first people die before anyone has even understood what is happening. While pilot watches, grim-faced from the balustrade, five hundred plain-clothed soldiers among the crowd of ten thousand unsheath their knives. Pull the nearest man to them by the shoulder, lean in close, cut through his neck so that he dies without a sound. All around the square, men fall to their knees, gasping, clutching at mortal wounds, or crumple to the floor, or try to cry out and are silenced by a swift swipe to the throat. And then there begins to be screaming. There are men in this crowd who burned the grain store, who killed the horses, who threw the stones. This is true, but the soldiers do not differentiate between the innocent and the guilty. There are women who fall to the ground with bleeding wounds to the stomach. A young man who had stood quietly at the front of the crowd, calling for peace and dignity, is set upon by two of the soldiers who plunge their daggers into his chest in unison and withdraw them bloody as the young man's heart struggles and ceases. The people try to run, but those quiet men with their blades, well, they are human too, and have suffered daily abuse from the people whose land they occupy, and they are angry. Many of them are not even Roman. They're auxiliary troops brought in from the local population in Caesarea, or Samaritans brought in from north of Jerusalem. They bear Rome no more special loyalty than do the Jews. If Pilate thought he could control this once it began, he was wrong. He does not have the common touch, and has never sought to understand the people he governs, either the Jews or his own soldiers. He makes some other signal, a hand waving in the air, but no one is looking. The soldiers block the exits to the square and begin to advance, forming a net around the unarmed protesters. Some people escape through the buildings and up onto the roofs. Some manage to barge through the guards at the exits, using the bodies of the dead as shields. Some soldiers have died now. Only a handful, compared to the three hundred, four hundred Jews dead or bleeding out under the prefect's balcony. But enough that some of the Jews have managed to arm themselves with daggers from the corpses. They make a desperate run at the soldiers at the southern end of the square, where the line is weakest. At first, the charge seems to succeed. Five soldiers fall, blood fountaining off them, like water pouring from a broken aqueduct. The people run, screaming still in all directions. When they see the gap in the line, they begin to stream through it, making for home or for safety, carrying their injured and their children away from the place of carnage. But the line closes up again, and it takes two more attempts, another fifty people dead on the blood-slick, stinking floor, before the soldiers give in and let them run, weeping from the place. When it is done... There are 400 or so soldiers in the long brown robes that made them indistinguishable from the Jews, panting in the sun, and 600 bodies on the floor around them, so that the place is heaped with corpses. And the sun beats down, drying out the blood to a sticky film, and the flies settle on the bodies. And the soldiers go to wash and congratulate each other, because what else can they do now? The deed has been done, so it must have been mighty. And Pilate stands alone on his balcony and looks at the field of conquest and perhaps he wonders if this is how great caesar feels after a battle and why it does not feel more glorious he had read the gallic wars at school and had expected something different
0: This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Naomi Alderman about her book The Liar's Gospel. So, Naomi, the one of the four characters that we haven't talked about so far is Baravo, who mm. is the Latinized version is Barabbas, portrayed as a thief in the Bible, a murderer. And as you've already described earlier in the interview, you, you basically portray him as a freedom fighter stroke terrorist. Mm. And again, we've described how you know, you vividly portray the time and there's a portrayal of what it's like to live under occupation. The Romans... Now, the obvious thing to say is you can't escape the parallel of what it must be like to live under, you know, what the Palestinians are living under a, a so-called occupation now. Yeah. So I want to talk in this part of the show about basically what the reaction to the book has been. Mm. First of all, in terms of that, as I said, it's, it's an obvious comparison. But also just let's start, I guess, first of all, on have people reacted to you rewriting the story of Jesus at all?
2: Um, well, before the book was even published... I started to get some anti-Semitic email, which was the point at which I took my email address off my website because mm-hmm. it had been very easy to email me. And now you have to come and find me on Twitter uh, where I can easily block you if you're a dick to me. Or you have to email my agent, which that is a situation in which I'm much happier with. And, and, so and I your s- agent's
0: getting the anti-Semitic email. I think
2: my agent might be and is just not telling me. Because uh, what do I need to know? Look, I haven't had anything horrible arrive at the house, thank goodness. Um, I mean, it's going to be published in the US in about three weeks' time. Mm-hmm. So I suppose there might be some backlash there. I feel lucky to live in England, where it's likely to be a bit less, you know, it's a bit less severe. Here, than it would be there, I think. Yeah, so this Bar Avo, I mean, you're right. You're right that it's impossible to escape the parallels with what's going on in Israel at the moment. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to escape them. This book, this is a book that has slipped through the net of my mind and has forced me to reevaluate things that I didn't really want to have to reevaluate. Both my parents are very committed Zionists, and I certainly believe in the right of the State of Israel to exist. But there is a thing about writing where if you're writing a character convincingly, you have to look out through that character's eyes. Mm -hmm. I don't really like Barravo, but I had to make him real. And so I had to understand his perspective. So the situation is not identical by any means, but... Why is the situation so similar? Well, we can draw a direct line where we say the Romans were occupying Palestine and Judea in that period of history. The British Empire modelled itself on Rome very specifically, very open about modelling itself on... on, You know, that's why we learn about Roman history, really, is because, you know, the British Empire loved it. The British Empire was ruling Palestine. We, the British it was, who with the one hand made a balfour declaration saying that the jews would have palestine and with the other hand there was lawrence of arabia wandering around saying to promising that the shah of mecca that muslims would have palestine well this was not going to work but it's exactly the kind of double dealing the romans would do exactly exactly like that and then so you know israel has turned up in this situation it's ended up yeah, with a very similar situation on its hands as the Romans did, and really, this character Barabbas in the New Testament, we hear he's a murderer, but the Romans are not interested in executing a Jew who murdered another Jew. This doesn't interest them. If you're being executed by the Romans, it's because you murdered a Roman soldier. Mm-hmm. If you murdered a Roman soldier, there were people in that crowd who think you're a freedom fighter. So in the New Testament and in in other portrayals of it, oh, they say, oh, the priests went around and whipped the people up into a frenzy, and you know that's the only reason they didn't call for Jesus to, for Jesus to be released because Pilate sets up this little game of you know call for you can release one of these two barabbas or jesus Mm -hmm. which one do you want but when i read it i thought surely there would be very good reasons for them to call for barabbas if this guy had murdered a roman soldier to some people he's an absolute hero so yeah so it is it 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 is kind of weird and terrifying in a way that things work so similarly there today some of the way that barabbas life works in the novel is modeled on what's going on now with hamas and hezbollah in the palestinian territories Mm -hmm. Inevitably, those organisations are the ones that are providing food and medicine and water for people when they have had their homes bulldozed. Inevitably, they have a certain kind of loyalty. I only discovered a few weeks ago that if you are injured, if you're living in Palestinian territories and you are injured and have to receive treatment in an Israeli hospital, the Palestinian Authority will pay for your treatment if and only if your injury was sustained as part of the resistance In other words, being involved in the resistance is like having health care in America. You know, it's like having having health insurance. Like, that's how that works. When people are under occupation, the same pressures come, and the whole thing is about the struggle. And the people who you can rely on to bring you bread are the people who are involved in the struggle. Mm-hmm. So this is how I wrote about Baravo. Now, he's quite good fun, my Baravo. He's a roister doister. He's a, you know, he's, he's shagging a lot of girls and going on riots and so on. And I have... Yeah, it was very hard for me because I didn't want to make him sympathetic, but I think he is sympathetic.
0: Well, it's it's interesting that I'm really surprised that you said that you don't like him because, and I think it's obviously incredibly well done and very cleverly done, but until, and although it is historical, so people could look it up, but I won't spoil the ending.
2: Things do go badly in the
0: end, but...
2: Yeah, the answer is that <laughs> if you're going to have a big war with the Roman Empire, yeah, yeah, yeah. we would know if the Jews had won that war. Yeah,
0: yeah, we certainly would. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that things didn't turn out well like that, but... um. For the first sort of three quarters of his story, I thought he was the hero of the book, and that you were deliberately setting him up as a parallel to Jesus. obviously, there is a yeah. the scene where where he is chosen above Jesus, which is incredibly powerfully done but I also thought that actually, yeah, this guy is not only is he a freedom fighter but he is doing the things that we think Jesus did,
2: yeah, 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 because Jesus didn't do those things Jesus. Jesus was murdered and died and did not continue uh, mm-hmm. to try and free people so yeah, so in fact i I wanted to write it that way. I wanted to write Barabbas's life as a as a real parallel with jesus's life and but that at every stage he would do the opposite mm-hmm. so Baravo is really nice to his mum and really looks after her, and, and Barabo, you know, gets married and has a family, which is very important for Jews. And he goes and also he goes to Galilee, where there are these incredibly strong fishermen who is exactly the kind of muscly bodies you want to be on your side when they come every festival to Jerusalem. You want them as your fighters. And he's also betrayed, but he tracks down the person who betrays him and tortures them to death because you know you're not gonna leave somebody who betrays you. So I want to do that. It's really interesting that you thought he was the hero. I mean I'm glad because I wanted to make him as as i possibly could i suppose what happens at the end which i won't i won't say but i know that what one ought to say about this situation is oh you must always fight for your freedom freedom is the most important thing i actually think that the heroes of this story the heroes are the people who are seen by their own community as traitors both actually let's say let's say i think i think judas is a hero I think Caiaphas is the hero of this story. I think those people and you know we would call them Vichy government. we would say we would say they're they're traitors and they collaborators, but actually when you're facing the Romans, the Romans are not the Nazis. I mean, the Romans were terrible. They were awful. But what they wanted was stability so that they could extract as much value as possible. And in that situation, I know that we all say, oh, you should fight for your freedom. Fighting for freedom did not do well. I want to find a tiny little bit right towards the end to read to you, which is about the next high priest after Caiaphas. And this paragraph, I just absolutely agree with everything in this paragraph. Um, This is the, the next high priest thinking about his life. He has lived his whole life under the words of his father. The same words the whole family lived by. Keep the peace. Keep the temple working. Keep the sacrifices which allow us to speak to God every day. It is he who has oiled the relationship between the new governor and the temple. Who has maintained his father's old relationships with Syria and Egypt. With informants in Rome and along the coast. Every man must choose what to dedicate his life to. And he has chosen this. Only peace Not justice, because peace and justice are enemies. Not vengeance, not loyalty, not pride, not family, not friends, not on occasion dignity. Only ever peace, which demands the full load of a man's life, but his life has not been enough. And that is what I think. That is basically it. So Barabbas definitely thinks that he's the hero, because he says, he wants to say, you can take our lives, but you'll never take our freedom actually no let them take your freedom and continue to live unless they are actively making your life impossible to live with any joy in which case you might as well try and kill them or die in the attempt i do not think that necessarily the best thing to do is to rise up violently against your oppressors in every conceivable situation in some situations it's the right thing to do but not always (laughs) and so yeah so freedom fighters Think that freedom fighters think that they're the heroes. Pilot Pontius, pilot the oppressor thinks that he's the hero. They all think they're the bloody hero, but Mm -hmm. I think Caiaphas is the hero for just continuing with that difficult, annoying, undignified work of forgetting that terrible things have been done to you, and just saying, "All right, to keep the peace, I will swallow it." Let's carry on.
0: Okay, just to finish up the discussion about the book a question that we we could have said right at the start of the interview, really, which is, why did you write this book? And before I let you answer that yourself, I want to sort of foist a rather huge and impossible project on it, really. But um, you've attempted to reclaim this story for Judaism. Mm. This is the claim that I've read about this book. And of course, the... I was going to say the true story. It's not the true story. The Bible, the New Testament. There's a particular part played by Jews in the New Testament, mm. which has then echoed down the centuries. So, is there any attempt to redress that in why you wrote this book?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. I mean, I guess one easy way of explaining why I wrote this book is as a Jewish person, one sometimes gets asked the question why don't Jews believe in Jesus? and this book is my answer to that question you know it's possible to believe that jesus existed and to know a lot about the history and still not think that jesus was the son of god mm-hmm. you know this is a book really about i mean maybe, so perhaps jews would disagree with me but i think this is a book about what jews believe about jesus which is maybe he was an all right bloke maybe he had some interesting things to say we don't think he was divine we don't think he rose from the dead here's what we think happened
0: but that question is better than why did you kill jesus <laughs>
2: that is that yeah 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 but if you ask me why did you kill jesus then um the conversation would be over and i would just think you're an anti-semite whereas if you say why don't you believe in jesus that's the start of a conversation (laughs) so yeah i suppose you know the book ends with this line can i read the last line of the book it doesn't really reveal anything this was how it ended and all the sorrow that came after followed from this so I think the weight of two thousand years of anti-Semitism is certainly pressing down on this book. I think it must be there in our understanding of what it is for a Jewish person to tell that Christian story, because the Christian story has been used to justify the massacres of many more times the number of Jews that the Romans killed. You know, that sort of Roman project of killing Jews was passed very happily onto the Christians, who sort of went at it with vim and vigor for a number of centuries. So. One of the things that I wanted to do with the book is to say this story started off as a story about a Jewish guy and ends up as a story that is used to justify the murder of millions of Jews. Probably tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions over the centuries. I don't know my demography well enough to know if there were hundreds, but certainly tens of millions. And to and to really feel the tragedy of that, to feel the tragedy of this this just interesting bloke who wandered around the desert healing people and this story then ends up with crusades and with jews being flayed alive or did you know the spanish inquisition used to do a thing that was quite a lot like waterboarding except they would put a cloth over your face and then pour water on it and so that you would end up inhaling the cloth and they would pull it out and ripping out bits of your lungs with it that's what jesus's message ended up in (laughs) so
0: do unto others as they would do to you.
2: Well, exactly! <laughs> and you just think... So, yeah, so I suppose, yeah, that has been in my mind for a long time of maybe just peeling it right back and let, let's really appreciate the kind of full horror of all these things coming from this very intriguing, unknowable character. Does that answer the question?
0: It certainly does. <laughs> well, that's the Liar's Gospel then. Naomi Alderman's The Liar's Gospel. It's out now by Penguin. Very briefly to finish off then, you mentioned that you're working on science fiction now. I am. To broaden that out a bit, I want to hear about this thing. There's a thing called the Rolex Mentor Prodigy Project. Yes. What is that?
2: So Rolex, who make the watches, Mm -hmm. run an arts programme. It's it's part of their sort of corporate charitable giving, where every two years they pick people from... They find world masters in six different disciplines, so film, theatre... Uh,
0: architecture was one of them Oh
2: yeah, architecture, fine art, dance, music and, and literature So, and they, they find sort of world genius in the subject and then, then they find somebody to kind of pair them up with who's sort of up and coming in the field who they think might enjoy working together so like previous one of the film mentors was Martin Scorsese you know, they get amazing people for it so margaret atwood agreed to be the literature mentor and then there's a whole sort of process of application you have to be invited to apply for this and fill out huge long essays and then the four finalists were flown over to canada to meet margaret and she chose me as her mentee as her protégé for the year so i'm working with margaret atwood we've written a serialized online zombie novella together that is a true thing and not a dream i had (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and now I'm working on my new novel and uh, in about a week and a half's time I'm going out to Canada to show her what I've got. So
0: how do you anticipate that working then you'll go out there you'll show her your, your draft of your sci-fi novel which obviously Margaret Atwood is something of a something yes. of an expert in.
2: Yes I mean I think part of the reason she probably chose me is because I, I said I would be working on this project which is what I want to say is it's really a feminist science fiction novel of the 1970s and 1980s which nobody's it's writing. It's not Margaret in. Atwood novel.
0: Yeah basically
2: <laughs> basically so I'm going to try not to be too influenced because I feel like you know but what I want to do is have wonderful conversations with her mm. about it and we're already having fantastic conversations it's such a privilege mm. such a privilege amazing, thing. To be written, amazing thing she's just incredibly lovely i did not expect to feel real feelings of love towards her but i really do so we're supposed to spend a week together every two months one week every two months so that gives me time to kind of do some writing and then show her some and then go away and do some more writing and show her some and uh yeah i hope we'll be able to be in touch even when the year is over I hope so but it's yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. It's 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 been wonderful, and yeah, I'll be going to stay in Margaret Atwood's house, which is not a thing I ever anticipated. And we haven't even talked about the fact that I make games, but I do make games. I make a game called Zombies Run. Zombies comma Run exclamation mark. And she's going to be guest starring in an episode of it. So hopefully, I make making... a
0: game. It's something else that sounds like a dream. Yeah.
2: Yes. I've discovered that if you put the words with Margaret Atwood at the end of any sentence, it sounds like a dream you had. You know, even something very simple like. Uh, I'm showing my novel to Margaret Atwood. This sounds like a dream I had. You know.
0: <laughs> How do you expect working with Margaret Atwood then to, to rub off on the final product? product that was a horrible way to describe it <laughs> you mean novel, novel. How, how do you expect working with Margaret Atwood to rub off on the on the finished novel
2: <laughs> so I think if I knew in advance exactly what was going to happen I wouldn't have to do the, the, the whole thing and you know the part of what you do is you go into both writing novels and you know any kind of creative project you go into it open-minded and not knowing what's going to happen and just excited to see what comes out of it but I think already spending time with her a and I know this sounds a bit feeble but it just makes me respect myself more as a writer It makes me feel like I should take myself seriously because somebody of her calibre is taking me seriously. Mm -hmm. So I'm a serious writer. You know, that's a thing, apparently. Also, it's been very fascinating for me to notice that she doesn't have time ever to think about or talk about her own literary reputation or legacy or any... This is not what interests her. She's because she's so interested in the world. You know, she's interested in technology and she's interested in conservation. She's an environmentalist and she's quite a world expert on birds. You know, she just... And this, to me, is a great lesson that we have to stop thinking about ourselves so much. Take yourself really seriously as a person and your goals and ambitions really seriously. But then think about the world because the world is so much more interesting than fretting about what people think about you. And all the different people that I've met, because I've met a few of the other mentors and I've met some amazing people over the past kind of 12 months. And this seems to me to be true of all the most amazing people that you meet that, yes, they're known for being a genius film director or whatever but they also happen to translate Japanese poetry for fun and I think all right it turns out if you want to play in the big leagues you can't just rely on being okay at one thing Mm -hmm. you have to just stop fretting about yourself and really engage with the stuff that interests you because for god's sake we're going to be dead at some point so we might as well milk life for as much as it's got in it. That's
0: a brilliant point for us to end. So I've been talking to Naomi Alderman, a serious writer. (laughs) Naomi, thank you for talking to Little Atoms today.
2: It's been an absolute delight. Thank you for having me. I'm Helen Zaltzman. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.